0: Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's
1: get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera, period. From the Ravenswood studio on the north side of Chicago, it's Opera Box Score. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by Oliver Camacho. Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, on the show this week, Oliver goes inside the huddle with Aaron Sheehan. The Grammy Award-winning artist is considered to be America's leading tenor in Baroque repertoire, currently featured in In In-Series' A Fairy Queen podcast series, and he carries the ball for Boston Early Music Festival's virtual Orfeo Spectacular. But first... One season gone, another one announced. That's the score at the Metropolitan Opera in New York City for the 20 and 21 seasons. We'll dig into the plus minus columns on that announcement, taking a closer look at who won and who lost. And then in the two minute drill, Jonas Kaufman finally hits the big time. Yep, he's on Amazon Prime. Oliver Camacho, great to see you as always with a snazzy new Matt Bailey. And a
2: sort of sporty attire it doesn't fit me that well because i lost my pecs due to covid but um <laughs> i'll say right now what's great about my new setup is that i can actually watch tennis at the same time and i'm watching roland Garros or french open on delay and for those of who don't know the french open was moved from may to now and they're all wearing like sweaters on the court because it's cold over there and the champion of the u.s open dominic team who's got the best buns in the business but the worst highlights um he made it through his first round match successfully so way to go Dominique Vámonos.
1: Matt Cummings repping the Steelers colors here.
2: I'm I'm
3: here in the 412 seeing my parents for a little bit of a uh, quality time before we are not able to do things outdoors anymore. So happy to be back <laughs> in the the land of the pens and Is that the your childhood Steelers. room? No, this is the uh this is the room where I did my homework mm. in high school. I learned a lot of algebra at the, at the desk over here.
4: Hmm. Oh, West, good time, Weston
1: Williams, did you learn algebra in that same closet?
4: Oh, absolutely. Every piece of math I know was learned in this closet. I know Y equals MX plus B. Gotta get that slope. I can factor an equation with the best of them. And I still don't really know how cones work, but I'm working on it.
1: Ashley Hardgrave rocking the arkansas chic down
4: grandpa sighting as well
5: yes there's a lot of country blue there are a lot of hats hanging on walls there are a lot of old relatives in older photographs uh hanging on walls and and a cat running it is
4: such such a vibe you've got going on It's uh, (laughs) sugar (laughs) sugar baker chic (laughs)
5: <laughs> it, is, it is yes her colors are pink and pink my colors are blush and bashful uh no it's uh yeah i too am with uh family in the 479 in good old pope county arkansas home of the 1982 miss america uh parking meter company and me so hello from there
1: back here the in the 312 the bears are not three and two the bears aren't even three and one the bears actually are three and zero
5: three and oh and i'm as surprised (laughs) surprised as anybody (laughs) Uh, is anybody else three and oh out
1: there uh
3: i think you could say that uh them stillers are three and oh
5: yeah did you did you immediately reach for a terrible towel like the second you got back to the 412
3: i brought one with me in fact i had it that was what i wrapped around the microphone for safekeeping
2: where is 412 i I think nobody knows except you guys It's, it's pittsburgh okay
4: <laughs> I'm just hearing numbers going 3 and 0, 4 one about G, mean, whatever like, yeah, number this is actually said podcast. I'm having like these these algebra flashbacks from these from the long co- uh, college nights attempting to do remedial statistics Ugh, you guys I can't do it anymore i can't
3: you guys didn't memorize all the area codes in the united states that's pretty embarrassing <laughs> yeah, for you
5: come on no i well here's the <laughs> we- deal i have been here in arkansas for 36 hours and my accent is already thicker than normal so by the end of this podcast i might be <laughs> boom power <laughs> levels of unintelligible so best of luck to you all in trying to get through this podcast with me
1: All right, let's talk some opera. Chalk Talk on
0: Opera Box Score.
1: The Met has a track record for doing things simultaneously, like its famed live and HD simulcasts. Last week, it managed to cancel the 2021 season in its entirety while announcing the 2021. 2022 lineup lots to talk about here but let's start with that decision to cancel the 2020 2021 season ashley just how surprised were you that this upcoming season is no more
5: uh not <laughs> i i just i you know to be fair I remained as hopeful as ever and as anyone that we would be able to get back to live performances sooner rather than later. But this is, uh, we we live in a current American society that hasn't yet gotten a grip on this virus and a way to contain it in a way that makes public performances in the way that we would usually do them safe. Uh, I'm not surprised by this. I am disappointed in the way that it was handled in the timing of the Public notice versus when the artists were notified, which were about four minutes apart, according to some of our sources. I know we're going to talk about that.
4: Yeah, I, I, I saw a tweet from our good friend, uh, uh, Zach Finkelstein. Uh, he, he tweeted um, uh, breaking Met Opera told performers of canceled season less than five minutes before New York Times article um, uh, broke. Uh, New York Times tweet at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, Met at 9.03 a.m. Pacific Standard St- Standard Time. Two soloists confirmed they received an email from Gelb at 8.56 uh, and, quote, several other Met musicians found out on social media. The, ti- the
3: timestamps don't lie, people.
4: <laughs> the timestamps don't lie. And honestly, after the way the Met has been handling this crisis... I I can't really say I'm too surprised by this. They they seem to be they they don't seem to be letting the right people know in the right way. Like on some level you're right. It it's, it wasn't a surprise that this season was going to be canceled, but there is at least some level of courtesy a few days beforehand at least some talking saying okay, here's what's going to happen. Um, you know, Here's what's going on. And then releasing that information to the public, especially when you have a situation like this, wherein it does not appear like the um, anyone is going to be compensated for this uh, lost time as the Met Orchestra has not been for the past, uh, what, six, seven months? Going on.
3: I think we're about to enter month six. I think I want to say it was April
4: when that furlough went through. So I mean, my sense of time has been entirely destroyed by the pandemic. I mean, so what I have even, no idea what even is <laughs> a
3: month. Uh,
4: I want to I want to read a little bit of the uh, the Met Orchestra posted on uh, Facebook, I believe, uh, a statement, uh, and I want to read it out a little bit here. Uh, here's what it says. After being furloughed without pay for six months, we are concerned for our members and their families as they navigate what will now be over a year without economic support from the Met. Furthermore, we are devastated that the Met has not found ways to engage the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra during this closure, especially when the Met Stars series shows that there is a possibility for collaboration. Many orchestras across the country are performing in adapted ways, continuing to connect to their valued audience members and communities, simply stating that labor costs must be cut is not a solution or plan for the future, especially in light of the fact that no labor costs have been paid by the Met over the last six months. Great artistic institutions cannot cut their way to success. This leadership approach only further jeopardizes the Met's credibility and artistic integrity with our audiences. With the Met at risk of artistic failure, we will insist on a contract that preserves the world-class status of the Met Orchestra so that when we are able to reopen, our audiences will be able to experience performances at the level that they expect and deserve." And well, they're thought...
1: absolutely right. I mean, look, when you're talking that labor costs have to be cut, it's not a solution. It's certainly not a plan for, for the right. future at all. Quite the contrary. It sounds counterintuitive to say that this is a time for expansion. But when you look at the most successful opera houses in Europe right now and what they're doing, they are finding ways to move forward. The Met surely has to be the only, the biggest, opera institution in this country, perhaps the world, that is not utilizing outdoor spaces. I mean, Central Park, Lincoln Center is not on the border of Central Park, but it's pretty darn close, right? That plaza out there in front, decent weather over the spring and the summer. There are ways to expand and there are ways to think outside the box of the proscenium to make this Mm. work. And when you
3: take into account the fact that the Metropolitan Opera, by nature of being the biggest opera company in definitely the United States, if not maybe the world, they have instant name recognition and they have the bully pulpit to be able to set the example and they just kind of are passing the buck here uh and i don't know how much of that is due to them gearing up to uh go to battle with the unions which we all know was coming and the new york times article uh hinted at that um and maybe those union obligations had something to do with the fact that they're not able to do anything but it doesn't sound like it from the orchestra union statement uh and just the fact that they are they're, they're willing to gamble on their name recognition and their prominence as bringing about continued relevance back when things are quote unquote back to normal ignores the fact that we don't really know when normal is or even how normal right. it will be. And so to put all your eggs in the basket of just being able to go back to doing whatever you were doing before, which kind of everyone already acknowledged wasn't working, uh, doesn't seem like a long term strategy or even a short term strategy for success.
1: Well, the, the Metropolitan Opera is also making the mistake of thinking that this pandemic is going to fit into some overarching human schedule or design, right? This idea of like, right. well, by the time September comes, because that's when school starts, the pandemic will be over, right? These are self-imposed schedules on Mother Nature. That's not the way the numbers are going to get crushed.
3: And probably that that does have to do with, you know, some of the things that Dr. Fauci is saying coming out of the CDC. They're thinking by third quarter of 2021, if everything goes as well as it could, we might be close to normal life by then. But that is still a best case scenario. And I. it seems like taking a gamble to try to go toward the best case scenario. And even the uh, the mitigation steps that they're trying to take for September 2021 are a little all over the place, is, so is the, the, reaction, the term I would use.
2: The reaction from the community has been uh, really outraged. I mean, I've seen every level of artists from very local artists that will never sing at the Met here in Chicago to people that have a big reputation like Christine Gerke or Michael Fabiano or even Anita Rachvelashvili saying on their social media how disappointing this is and how uh, I'm not assigning any of these to any particular person but how the Met can't be more creative to think of a way to use their artists Um, and there was interesting a think piece came out in the Guardian I think it came out today or yesterday uh, talking about how we have to you know adapt and how there has to be now this uh, you know movement towards making arts organizations hyper local and to think about you know how to use this sp- you know how to use the space differently and how to accelerate you know th- connecting with our audiences digitally in this time uh, so that you know artists can continue to be engaging with their audi- audiences.
4: And let's not like lose sight of the fact too that it's not just about engaging the company with uh, audiences um, and how this is a, a failure as far as that goes, but also the fact that these a lot of these artists are not getting the help they need to just survive over the past six months and into the next year um, with with no prospects. Even the best case scenario where this season does go, the next season does go on as planned. Um, there's, you know, there's just a lot of uncertainty, a lot of people whose lives or I mean, to to play in the orchestra at the Met means you've worked for years, you've, uh, you've gone to school, you've practiced for hours and hours and hours a day and, and there's nothing for you, you know, there's no money for you. There's no help. Uh, and that, and this is something that I'm seeing a lot on a more local level. Obviously it's not quite the same with, uh, uh, larger institutions like the Met, but, um, but you know i'm seeing a lot of artists in various fields in theater uh in music just dropping like flies because they have to get money somehow and they're moving to different industries because there's no support for them and what the, the met needs to uh try to connect with audiences yes but in my mind it's more important that they try to find as many ways to advocate and pay, if possible, uh, uh, their artists and their performers and their staff and their administrators that got laid off several months ago who are now living off of who knows what. Uh, And this is just something that is, it really gets down to sort of the material necessities of life for me. And I think it's something that we, we want to keep in mind when we're in these online spaces talking about this, criticizing the Met, that these kind of things need to be provided for. And the people who are playing are, are human too and need all of these things. Uh, all right. Just
1: like the Detroit Tigers of the past few years, there comes a point in your season where you're just going to give up and let it go. Clearly that <laughs> is letting 2021 go. If we look to 21, 22, they made the announcements of some of the portions of that season as they decided to cancel 2021 Weston. Uh, it's,
4: it's a real like a uh, whiplash thing, right? Cause you, you, you're like, you're seeing like this, these horrible, this horrible cancellation, the the implications for audiences and artists. And then you see this season and it's actually kind of an interesting season. Uh, they've got a lot of, uh, they have a, a few new productions, um, uh, a few new works, which is always a surprise with the Met. Um, all of the new productions that they were going to do this past season have just been kind of pushed out to future seasons, which I think is kind of an interesting move. Oh, it's kind of, that, that's probably... kind of
3: their, that's, that's really their only choice at this point. They, they program most well, well, things right. like five years I advance. had been kind of, yeah.
4: I, I would have expected, of course, I don't know what with, with contracts and all, but I kind of would have ex- expected some of them to be moved to the next season, but they've all been pushed out, but we do have a lot of new productions and they're going to open the season if it happens um with fire shut up in my bones uh by uh Terence Blanchard um which is uh amazing uh, we knew that this was wh- this opera was coming to the met for a while now but uh i think the met has maybe finally made a good pr call for the first time in, in who knows how many months um by put, putting their first opera by uh, a a black composer um in the very first slot to open the season. I think it's the right move Um, um, and it's one that I wasn't necessarily expecting but I'm pleasantly surprised by. Uh, They also have... Um, A couple of other uh, new operas. We've got Matthew Alcoins and Sarah Rule's uh, Eurydice, which I'm really excited about. I've never seen the opera. I only know the play. And I love Sarah Rule. Another, a woman librettist, a very exciting thing. Uh, Brett Dean and Matthew Jocelyn's version of Hamlet, which I have seen and I love. Uh, Lots of like really exciting new works and some new productions as well that you wouldn't ordinarily expect from the Met Especially given the general vibe of the last season cancellation.
3: You've got the the death of the Las Vegas Rigoletto. We've got a new production coming yeah. in of Rigoletto, uh, the first production of the French version of Don Carlo. Don Carlo. Nazis again
2: loves that opera so much. That was
3: way. yeah, and and it's a great opera. It's a lot of opera, and whenever you talk about <laughs> it, you have to spend like. The first fifteen minutes being like, well, there are eighteen different versions of the same music, <laughs> just rearranged in different jigsaw puzzles. And which one are we doing? Let's find out. Uh, which, as a musicology nerd, I really enjoy. But really, there's a lot more to that opera than that conversation, <laughs> and that's the only thing that anyone ever talks about when you're when you're trying to study it. Uh, new production of Lucia de Lammermoor, starring uh, Nadine Sierra.
1: Exactly. And that replace, that production replaces the old uh, Mary Zimmerman production from about 10 years ago, I would say, probably. That's directed by Simon Stone, the Australian director, um, who has had a quite an unusual life. If you read about his life, uh, I am excited to see that production, perhaps more than anything else on this roster, because I love the piece so much. Excited to see what he's going to do with it.
2: Ashley, I don't know if if you're waiting to jump in. I think you were earlier and didn't get a chance.
5: Well, I I was, and I have a point that goes back to something previously, but I want to say one thing about sort of what we're talking about now. The one thing that makes me anxious, I'm excited that they're going to open the 21 season with fire shut up in my bones. It worries me because it is the closest in time to us now when we don't yet have the pandemic managed. Uh, It is less than a a year away. And so if we don't get our expletive together to get back into some sort of semblance of a normal society. The first show of the season is going to be the one that's cut and it's going to be Terrence's, uh, Terrence's show. So I not to be Debbie Downer, not to be a, you know, prophecy of doom or anything like that, but I'm going to cross my fingers that we can keep that together. One of the things I did want to mention that goes back to our previous topic was, um, you know, there's, we're delighted that Met has this season. We are lamenting that the Met hasn't done more to be creative in the way that we've seen some other smaller companies do, the way we've seen European houses do. I'm gonna give the Met a free piece of advice, and that is. Go to the education departments of your institution and other opera houses around the country because if there are people who know how to do something with nothing and work on a shoestring budget to get the art made, it's the community engagement and education. Go to go to Lyric Opera in the Neighborhoods. Go to the people that are the ones that are producing mini operas and educational programs for schools because their budgets are lean, but they know how to get expletive done. You know, they know how to get stuff really taken care of. So if, if the Mets looking for a way to try to create some sort of art that would give them a way to do this on a lower paycheck, that's, you know, that that seems like pretty low hanging fruit that they haven't yet accessed.
3: And in addition to that, to, just to build off what you were saying, Ashley, like, just in case anyone needed a reminder, we're in the middle of a pandemic, disproportionately affecting the people of color uh, during a series of civil rights demonstrations trying to protest police brutality against people of color uh there have been articles for years about how exclusive classical music can feel and seem and how little investment those same people feel they have in their community if there's any way that the met can try to reach out to new audiences reach out to new people try to support these communities that they're claiming that they care about in their public statements you know now is the time. Put it, put it where your mouth, put your money where your mouth is.
1: We will keep an eye on what happens in that distant future and, of course, the near future as well. You can let us know what you're thinking about the Mets cancellation and next season. OperaBoxScore at gmail.com.
0: Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle.
1: American tenor Aaron Sheehan, recognized internationally as a leading interpreter of Baroque repertoire, is equally at home on the concert platform and the opera stage. He sang the title role in Boston Early Music Festival's recording of Charpentier's La Descente d'Orphée aux Orfaires, oh. which won the best opera recording at the 2015 Grammy Awards.
2: Shocked that you got through that one.
1: <laughs> Impeccable pronunciation. <laughs> it's because of the charcoal delights this evening. <laughs>
5: I wonder why you were saying charcoal delights. I was like, is yeah. that a new band that I don't know? I didn't that's realize like it a, was your a, cup.
1: That's a
2: kind of a greasy spoon on the northwest side, like by North Park University. So
5: nice,
4: just to show off our real Chicago sort of yeah. here.
2: So I forget <laughs> that sometimes I have friends who are incredible, and I've been meaning to get Aaron on the show forever, but it always just feels like we're gonna our conversation will devolve into something that's just too personal and not you know, for the podcast. But this is a perfect opportunity to bring Aaron on because um, in November, Boston Early Music Festival is going to be doing a virtual little mini festival of Orfeo content, uh, his performance uh, of the complete Monteverdi opera, Orfeo. And then the Descent of d'Orfeo's Enfer from a couple of years before that. And then a more recent, performance that he gave uh, which was a little Orfeo scene within an opera. Uh, The opera was La Fête Venetienne by André Campra, and it has this parody of Orfeo in the middle of it. So it'll be triple Orfeo featuring Aaron Sheehan and we also know from last week that uh, right now Aaron is a part of that A Fairy Queen uh, in-series opera web series or it's actually a podcast series so go listen to that and you can find Aaron all over the place his recording of Handel arias and BEMF recordings and whatnot um, he's just a very prolific artist and a good friend of mine and uh, I wanted to get a little bit more you know about his biography on the show so we'll begin talking about his foray into early music as an undergrad uh, apparently one of his early teachers Uh, handed him a Monteverdi piece Uh, that teacher was Rebecca Lister at Luther College in Iowa gave him the Monteverdi Laudate Dominum and then it just went on from there Uh, before we go to the interview we will hear Aaron uh, in a bit of Cichet the opera by Luli from the Boston Early Music Festival
0: So
6: that was the first taste of early music that I probably had. Um, And when I auditioned for grad schools, I did not even think of attending Indiana University at first, and she made me audition there because she wanted me to go to the early music program there. Um, that was like Paul Elliott back then, or yeah, Paul Elliott was okay. my voice teacher actually, and Paul Hillier was there, theater voices, and Nigel North. So I feel like I was taught by the Brits. Yeah. <laughs> um, so she made me audition there, and thank God she did because I got in and then I spent three years getting a master's in something that I wasn't really, I didn't know what it was. You know, I'm, I was like, I like Bach and Handel, but when you go into an early music program, you don't do a lot of Bach and Handel. You do everything before Bach and Handel. Mm -hmm. Um, And then from there, well, through that, uh, I had a lot of work with Paul Hillier, who had a group called Theatre of Voices. I think he still does. Yeah. Um, so that was my first kind of professional work was kind of ensemble Renaissance music, and, and
2: like the random Arvo Pärt
6: thing. And the random Arvo Parrot, which <laughs> <laughs> one of my biggest professional cracks ever was at Trinity <laughs> College in Cambridge, singing the Berliner Mass of Arvo Pärt one mm-hmm. on a part <laughs> on the Agnus Day. Tenor comes it's like in all A's, I, A's, A's, yeah. A's, it's right? like, oh, say, and and I just bombed it, cracked it, <laughs> and yeah, I forgot about that until now. But that it goes down as a huge crack. Um, and then from there, I moved to Boston, um, and I do have to thank Ellen Hargis because she recommended me to a lot of people in Boston, and I met Ellen in theater of voices mm-hmm. um when i was working with them but she put me in touch with all these conductors in boston because she had just moved from boston to chicago
2: okay at that
6: point um and then from there on like boston i moved there because it's the it was it still is the early music capital in the united states
2: yeah you know, Boston. The other like opera people in Boston are trying to dissuade people of that idea that Boston's like an early music town. It's an oratorio town, but it's true, right? You, you I think. It, I mean, it, it is true.
6: I. It is an orot- I mean, I love that it's an oratorio town. Um, it. I don't know why the two can't exist together. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, like it could be a great opera town um, and great early music town, oratorio town. It's great. There are tons of choral societies too. Yeah.
2: Um I think it has to do with all the brains that are there. There's so much academia over there. So that's could be its downfall too. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I left. No.
6: (laughs) But in Boston, I it took me a few years. Like actually when I first moved there, I missed the Boston Music Festival's audition by like a month. And so they're like, oh, audition for us in two years. So which is probably a good thing because I had some time to cut my teeth <laughs> in mm. Boston. And, and it wasn't until I finally sang for Paul and Steve in the Boston early music festival that I kind of, that was my first big break, I would say in the solo kind of world outside of, because otherwise I did a lot of Renaissance choirs and a lot of ensemble singing. Right. But it wasn't until them that I.
2: So you've already said quick... so many things that I, I just want to like, say we don't have time to talk about, but the idea that somebody like you has all this training in like Renaissance and medieval music, and you actually have like a side career doing that type of music, but that doesn't have anything to do with this show. I know. Uh, (laughs) But I've always wanted to talk about how, you know, even in in classical music, there's the niche of the early music people, and people think that means like Bach and Handel. But no, that's actually modern music for like the early music people. There are like these deep people who go into like this Renaissance and medieval music And, um, it's like its own world. It's like, it's like the, the smaller world within the world. And it's so weird. (laughs) Yes.
6: It's a, it is a very weird, small niche market and there are a lot of crazy people in it, (laughs) (laughs) but that's because they're, they're like, they're so wrapped up in like the intellect of it.
2: Yeah. But you know we don't know anything about singing technique from that era, and, so, <laughs> and you and you hear like people singing crazy ass shit on that stuff, you know, um, with I don't know what technique. But anyway, I heard. I think I first heard you singing in Fortune's Wheel, like for the first time. That was oh, yeah. my first experience hearing you, and I was like, oh my god, it's so beautiful. You know? Well,
6: and I I tend to think of the medieval. That's medieval music. Yeah. Um, I tend to think of that almost more closely related to. It. The singing of today and bigger, like operatic singing, than renaissance yeah. music because a lot of times it's solo and by <laughs> yourself, so you get to sing with your real voice
2: and you get to tell stories exactly. <laughs> so, um, I also want to say that you were in Indiana in the early aughts or the late 90s. I don't want to date you too much, uh, yeah. I
6: 98
2: to 2001, okay, <laughs> and I always feel that that's so Chicago adjacent and you could have come to Chicago and we could have been lovers. (laughs) We could have, (laughs)
6: but everyone that I was lovers with at that time, I hardly talked to anymore.
2: (laughs) Okay. So I would probably wouldn't be interviewed right now. (laughs) <laughs> and you needed to be with a uh, with a continuo player at any rate. You weren't yeah, gonna stick especially
6: yet. in this t- day and age, it's like I have my live-in COVID-19
2: continuo team. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, Boston, um, was it Boris Goodenough? was your break, or were you just in the chorus for that?
6: Well, I was supposed to be in the chorus. So when mm-hmm. I auditioned for Paul and Steve, I auditioned with Monteverdi's Orfeo, the very first aria. Rosa D'Angelo, mm-hmm. But I was doing a production of Orfeo at Harvard in English at the time. And so I auditioned singing it in English for Paul and Steve. And they laughed through the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> and so... Oh, yes. and did
2: Christian Bezoidenhut play for you? I think I ma- he did. Can you imagine that at one point, <laughs> all these kids got to sing with Christian Bezoidenhut and now... <laughs> I know. And now I'm he's like this big
6: guy. A big rock star conductor yeah. and, and piano player. And like um, 100
2: pounds lighter somehow. So. Oh my god,
6: it's a completely different person.
2: Yeah.
6: Um, but I, yeah, so I did that. And that was for Boris Guttenhoff, Matheson. And I was supposed to be in a choir. I think someone dropped out. And then they offered me the role that I got mm. in there. And yes, so that was my, my first big reviews came from that. And the big opera production
2: that BEMF does so yeah well I just want to talk a little bit about BEMF Uh, I'm a big fan as you know and how you have become identified with this organization like you literally are the poster child for this organization I mean I made I made fun of it but at the last festival you're literally on a magnet so people could go and buy a magnet (laughs) I'm on a shirt too like the
6: BEMF shirt like it's the funny thing was is that I didn't know that that was the case until I showed up at the festival and there I was on a magnet. Um, but I do, I mean, I do owe them a lot. I, I owe them the birth of what is my, I guess, international career. Um, Mm -hmm. if I wouldn't have done that, I might, I don't know where my career would be right now. So that's, and they have used me for the last 15 years. Like, Religiously, so I I can't complain about that. And I know you don't want to get stuck in a group where you're just like the only person singing all the time. You want to have variety. And but there's something nice about when an organization is um, uses the same people, and you 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 start to build a family, and you start to be able to trust the people that you're making music with and staging an opera with. Which I think and the
2: audience trusts the organization because you have like a certain you, ha- you are a brand now. You are a certain quality level. And people know that when they get an Aaron Sheehan performance, that it's going to have language. It's going to have movement. It's going to have beautiful, you know, grace. Uh, and it's, you know, and <laughs> <Hopefully>. it's going <gonna, laughs> it's gonna, it's gonna to bring the technique and it's going to have like a really heartbreaking moment. Like it's the Aaron Sheehan thing, you know? And I just think that it's great that there is an organization that, that still exists like that. Mm-hmm. That really takes care of its artists and develops them. I don't know similar organizations. Maybe Atelier has remained dedicated to its artists and the same ones over and over again. But you think? Can you think of any other place right now that you know when you go there, you know you're going to hear this person? You know,
6: I I don't. Um, I mean, I, maybe Anazema. <laughs> maybe yeah. Maybe like something like that. But if I think of like opera companies, like I don't. I, even like i because i'm not in the big opera world so yeah that I, I the closest thing i come to is sometimes getting to sing with orchestras like seattle symphony or things like that um and they are sometimes loyal but it takes them like several years to come back around to you um mm-hmm. so yeah you you this is a very unique organization i think in
2: that in that realm that
6: that you get that
2: and i'm not being able to talk right now <laughs> right. which makes it infuriating for other tenors who live well, in boston
6: <laughs> well that's the thing is that early music is hard to break into um and boston especially i just happened to come in at the right time when there were two tenors that were there for like 20 years decided mm-hmm. to take teaching jobs or they kind of like were moving out of singing that rep and maybe going into bigger rep mm-hmm. so i happened into Boston at a lucky time. And that counts for a lot of another reason why I have a career is because of luck. (laughs) Stuff that you can't control. So, which is good because we often lose control.
2: Well, I I also want to talk about how you said already that BEMF has launched this career. Uh, Can you talk about some of the other organizations that are maybe not US-based that we don't know about and some of the opportunities? And I remember you told me about Les Fontaines de Versailles and being at Versailles and like really understanding that music better because you actually saw the architecture and saw like the landscaping and it made more sense. I love that anecdote. Uh, but I also want you to eventually come back around to comparing the scene in other places of the world as a, what America is doing with early music.
6: I think that America's like in the United States, our scene has grown up like we are a major player in this field now. And I don't, and I think that we still have PTSD of like, oh, we're not good enough as, as good as the European groups. We have to always like look to them, but there are, the, the field is very deep now here. And I travel like the whole country singing with groups in California and Washington, Seattle and Oregon and Texas. I even did a Handel concert in Louisiana. Like the orchestra is always good. Like I'm amazed at the depth of our field now. And yes, everyone should go to Europe and everyone should go to sing this music sometime with an orchestra there because they've also lived this music and it's the way that they do it is sometimes perfect. But I think that the United States needs to get over itself and realize it's grown up. (laughs) Um, when I go to France, like, or when I've done French Baroque in France, um, I think that a lot of those French singers tended to stay in France and just Mm -hmm. sing in like the opera houses in France. Like here in the United States, we're going all over the country and we're trying to get to Europe, but usually like, like those singers can just make a living by touring around France and singing. Like I find that very... And Germany is the same way. Um, there's no reason to leave um, unless you want the international career. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, when I was doing a Campra, rope uh, Calant in France I love two that years piece ago, so much. Uh. one thing that I noticed right away was there was no talk of Inegal. It just happened. Like mm-hmm. They just knew what they were doing. And if you were to do a French Baroque concert here in the United States, the orchestra will spend at least an hour talking about how they're going to do Inégal. And it makes you want
2: to shoot yourself. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just wanted to t- ask you about singing in Versailles. Uh, and you did L'Europe Galante. Where did that happen? That, that, yes.
6: that happened at the, the Palace Sans Souci in Potsdam, mm-hmm. in the Orangerie Schloss, which was pretty much the greenhouse. Uh, and they erected a stage and just put 300 seats in there. It was it was a beautiful setting and if you ever can go to sans souci go because it's amazing you can imagine him running around <laughs> doing naughty things in the woods <laughs>
2: <laughs> and was there something like that really made you understand the music better when you were at versailles that something that felt like ah oh, now i get it you know
6: it's just the grandeur of it like when you listen to a French overture that opens almost any opera, mm-hmm. um, you have to imagine like Louis XIV making a huge entrance and like, and the enormity of like Versailles looking out past the fountains, past the Grand Canal, you just realize how grand and how big it is. And it should almost tell you exactly, this is the tempo this has to go because if it's too fast, it's not gonna make any sense. If it's too slow, it'll die. So just seeing the beauty of it too. I was with Nick Pond and Doug Williams mm-hmm. and I and we each had a bottle of wine and did a picnic and right on the Grand Canal and Doug was playing French Baroque music over a speaker and dancing around. And <laughs> <laughs> everyone was just like looking at us like we were freaks and it's going to go down as one of my most memorable days of my life, I think because of what we got to do and sit there and just take it all in. I think everyone needs to go there and take it all in for at least one day.
2: Yeah. Well, um, you won a Grammy or BEMF won a Grammy doing um, Charpentier, La Descente d'Orfeo's Enfer. Um, and that was that your first Orfeo with um, BEMF? Yes. Yeah, yeah.
6: I, I think I, I mix them all around. I can't yeah. remember anymore. I've done. Monteverdi, Orfeo with them, and Charpentier. And then the Compra that has the opera in an opera. So I've done three. The parody of the Orfeo, yeah. The parody, yeah. So I've done three Orfeos with them, and I think the Charpentier was first, yeah.
2: So coming up in, is it October or November? They're in lieu of the Thanksgiving chamber opera. Opera. They're releasing the greatest hits of Aaron Sheehan.
6: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, they're doing... Monteverdi one night and then the Charpentier and then as a teaser or a, an encore they're going to show the Compra Feo. It's funny when you like are doing all of these shows you don't realize the kind of the stamp you're putting on something but mm-hmm. or how much you're actually doing but now that yeah now that that's coming out you realize oh I have done a lot <laughs> yeah and I do feel like I live the character in a way I mean I, I want to get a tattoo of a liar somewhere in my body. Cause mm-hmm. I've done
2: so many Orfeos. So if you need me to supervise, let me know. So <laughs>
6: you need, you need to supervise Yeah. <laughs> or if you want to help me pick one out, okay. I want something really unique.
2: What was it like for you to sing that role and to learn, I mean, in Italian? Yeah. When well, I don't think necessarily think of you as an Italianate singer, but it's a very Italian character.
6: Yeah. It's, it's tons of Italian. Um, I mean, like when you're when you're learning that role, like you're, it's just huge. I think it's an hour and a half piece and like you sing 45 to 50 minutes of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And you have to know immediately what you're saying, like, you need to know that translation in your head, Um, which is hard for me. That's the hardest thing for me as a singer um, is the language because I'm a melody person and Yes, I fit into the category of that English kind of tenor thing, but I like to think of myself as leaning into harmonies and to melodies more than most people do. Um, so sometimes you might not actually get the text as clear for me as you will get the melody, because I think, and how the harmony is working with the baseline. That's the, the main thing that I want to portray when I'm delivering that music and if you deliver that melody that way you, you will realize that it lines up with the text exactly the same way like Monteverdi knew what he was doing he was setting this text in a certain way harmonically that makes sense so you don't even need to know the language to know what I'm saying that's kind of what I feel like I have to do in anything that I do especially for an opera audience that isn't speaking Italian.
2: Um, that's so interesting because i think of you as this person who is so tech centric and I, I hear you hear you say that <laughs> it's like blowing my mind because like I, when i think about you know when i seen you teach it's like you're always emphasizing you know the tech. i think i
6: teach that because it's i know it's my weakness mm-hmm. um and i for me the language is always the last thing that comes to me and i don't fluently speak french or lat or italian or german and i wish i did um and I do concentrate on diction a lot because I want the audience to understand, but the, always know that the, when you're watching me sing an opera, I I've studied that language for more than six months. Cause if I didn't, <laughs> it wouldn't be memorized. So <laughs> it takes me forever to memorize.
2: <laughs> so you just wrapped up this project with um, DC's in series Uh, And now it's available for everybody to enjoy. Uh, This is, it's called A Fairy Queen, not The Fairy Queen. A Fairy Queen. Yeah, and it's uh, an opera released over the course of, was it four podcasts? I think,
6: yeah, four podcasts. They did Night the First, like the mechanicals and the fairies. And then there's the play. And it was, I mean, I'm glad that like Tim Nelson should be, I love working with Tim, like, cause mm-hmm. I, I, love how Friend creative the he is.
0: Hmm?
2: Friend of the show.
6: It was an ingenious way to make something happen when in this world, we can't do what we want to do now. Mm-hmm. Um, and to mash up the fair, uh, Midsummer's Night Dream with Purcell's Fairy Queen. And it was my first time actually doing Shakespeare out loud, like, and performing it. So that was the thing that I was most nervous about was actually putting my Shakespeare out there to the world. (laughs)
2: Speaking. Speaking. Yes, I don't like
6: speaking. I can sing for thousands, but I can't. Speaking, I don't like doing.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think people like Tim Nelson are really trying to make early music relevant in an explicit way. He's trying to make everything relevant in an explicit way, which Mm -hmm. I appreciate. But your career is centered on this repertoire. And I wonder how you feel... And this is like, we always have like this social justice kind of political scent on this, on this podcast In doing a lot of French Baroque. Do you see any, um, like the way we see Mozart speaking to power? Do we see that happening in that era or not yet? You know, like, well, I think
6: that, I think that any opera mm -hmm. is almost never written for pure entertainment. It's Mm -hmm. commenting on the time or it is making a social statement about the time. Like, Charpentier in, I can't even think of some of them, like when they're performed for the king, it's supposed to like kind of remind the king, do you want discord or you want peace? Do you want art? Do you want music? Do you need, do you need like, There's always something in there that they're trying to persuade the king of or tell him like you never should just go into an opera like that and think, oh, this is a fun entertainment. Um, Yes, it's a fun entertainment, but it is telling a story and it's trying to influence someone.
2: It's like lobbyists and people in his own cabinet trying to get booked on Fox so that they can talk to (laughs) Trump directly because that's the only way he'll pay attention. yeah. (laughs) I mean, yeah, no, it's,
6: I, that's one thing that I've definitely learned partly through uh, the stage director at Banff, the Gilbert Blanc, like you go through and you, well, you get your music's like a year in advance and you're just reading through it and you're like, oh, I think I know everything about this opera. And then he sits down and gives a lecture for two hours and you realize, oh, that's why we're singing this music. And that's why we're staging it this way. It's because they're, they're trying to convince someone of something, or they're trying to make a commentary on the time.
2: I don't know how to include this, but I want to include it somehow. In the Orlando Generoso, um, was that what the name of the piece that you just did? Yeah. yeah. I think they just called it Orlando. Orlando, yeah. Um, you had a scene that was, I've never seen you on stage like this before. You were very raw. Mm -hmm. And it was um, it was very emotional. And um, I always think of you as like really buttoned up and like pretty, you know, and beautiful. But like this was sort of um, a gut punch, you know. What was it about that that made you go there?
6: Well, I mean, (laughs) again, working with Gilbert because he was the stage director, he he kept pushing me to go further because when you're doing a Baroque staging, it's hard to. You feel like you have to be in this certain position and buttoned up and graceful and beautiful but orlando goes crazy Mm -hmm. and he was pushing me to go crazy and i remember one time because i'm there was an aria where i was talking about the tigers and the lions and like these things are coming after me and during a rehearsal because i kept messing up the rhythm and getting off from the orchestra he stood in front of me and he said he made me stare right at his face and he's like, don't look away, don't look away right here, right here. And he made me back up like he was the tiger about to pounce on me mm-hmm. and it focused me and I never made him, I never messed up that like Aria again. And I feel like it pushed me to really live that staging. Um, Cause every time I got to that moment, that's what I thought. I was thinking of him standing right in front of me, commanding my, my presence and my attention what I hope to do is to try and give a real performance where you believe that I'm actually feeling these emotions. Um, mm-hmm. I know that that's not always the case, but I feel like I got close or the closest I've gotten in that opera. Um, so I feel like it pushed me to a new level. And like, he, he always likes to say, we will go to the next level and next time we will go further. Yeah. So, um,
2: no, it's, it's sometimes hard to feel the emotion in, those types of operas because there's just so much artifice you know but when i know i thought that that cast was so incredible i mean america she's a giant i mean i had never heard her sing before and like she had her first scene it's like she was like 10 feet tall on that stage you know oh yeah
6: she she was and she was like that from her she would never mark (laughs) she would when she sang through an aria her acting is never down. It's always a hundred percent. And if she doesn't like something, she's like, she'll cuss and she'll swear. And she'll be like, that was horrible. I need to do it again. (laughs) It's very Eastern European, (laughs) but amazing.
2: Well, Aaron, thank you so much for doing this. I'm so gutted about the Shilla and Glaucus and I am praying to God that we'll be able to get together for the next festival.
0: Yeah,
2: The Boston Early Music Festival has released a new opera CD featuring Michel Richard de Lalande's chamber opera Les Fontaines de Versailles and his secular cantata Le Concert d'Esculap.
4: Try to say that five, five times fast. Which means escape from the cantaloupe, I believe. <laughs>
5: That is very close, Weston. Yes. Very.
4: Yes. I Good. basically got
2: it. I, I know. Grammy Award winning musical directors Paul Odette and Stephen Stubbs and concertmaster Robert Mealy lead the all-star Boston Early Music Festival vocal and chamber ensembles with a cast headlined by Grammy winner Aaron Sheehan.
0: Yeah,
1: new,
4: new friend of the show.
1: I know yeah. that guy. He looks just like Aaron Rodgers. Oh. Uh,
2: <laughs> Grammy nominees uh, Teresa Wakeham and Jesse Blumberg. Friend of the show. Friend of the show. Soprano market rude. Baritone John Taylor Ward.
3: Very tall friend Friend of the the show. show. (laughs) And more.
2: Visit BEMF.org. That's B-E-M-F. Not P-H. BEMF.org. To purchase your copy and watch the virtual CD release party featuring audio and
4: video excerpts. And you can then go on Twitter and pester everyone who we didn't say friend of the show on to become our friends, my best friend Like Nadine Sierra. To replace like, all of my backstabbers in my life.
2: <laughs> Will Lieberman, we're asking for and you. Oh, everything... We, we oh, yes, Julia go ahead. Bullock. Talk about We Will. Want We want Julia Bullock. We want Julia yes. Bullock. And we also want Rhiannon Giddens, our rival in opera podcasting. Come on to
4: the show. <laughs> we need to take her down from the inside. Or <laughs> <The laughs>
5: Trojan horse of podcasts.
1: <laughs> the, the crosstown rival if we were in New York.
2: That's BEMF.org.
0: This just in. The two-minute drill. All
1: right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in opera land this week.
2: Michigan Opera Theater and Lyric Opera of Chicago announced the premiere of a co-production created by newly appointed Michigan Opera Theater Artistic Director Yuval Sharon. Twilight Gods is a drive-through experience based on Wagner's "Götterdämmerung," and we sincerely apologize to our Michigan listeners for failing to mention the Sharon appointment last week. Lyric Opera's reimagined season includes a web series by their newly appointed Artistic Director Enrique Mazzola and a behind-the-scenes look at the development of a new opera from Will Riverman and DJ recording artist Kay Rico titled Creating the Factotum. Will Liverman, please be our guest on the OBS?
4: Opera Philadelphia Channel has commissioned four composers to create and premiere new works to be streamed on the channel. The first premiere, slated for January 2021, will be composed by composer-in-residence Taishan Sori. Subsequent premieres will be composed by Courtney Bryan, Caroline Shaw, and Puerto Rican-born composer and multi-instrumentalist Angelica Negron. The
3: National Trust for Historic Preservation has begun to work to save Pittsburgh's National Negro Opera Company house. This important piece of Black American opera history was named one of the trust's 11 most endangered places. Mary Cardwell Dawson founded the company in 1941, making it the first Black opera company in the U.S. Whose performances also toured to New York, Chicago, and Washington, D.C.
1: In an interview with San Francisco Opera, soprano Nadine Sierra revealed that she's recovered from COVID-19 after contracting the disease in July. Sierra has since gotten a clean bill of health and returned to performances in Europe in August.
5: The Royal Opera House Covent Garden has pivoted its fall 2020 program schedule. Performances will be accessible for a global audience through live streams and also for a socially distanced live audiences at the Royal Opera House. Highlights include a Franken concert that covers a range including Gruber's actual Frankenstein, Barber's Knoxville Summer of 1915 (laughs) and Britain's Phaedra, a one-person chamber opera and Haydn's solo cantata Ariana Naxos, plus concert performances of Handel's Ariadante and Verdi's Falstaff.
2: The Bayerische Staatsoper has canceled the whole run of Poulenc's Dialogues of the Carmelites, slated for November due to coronavirus. Instead, the Staatsoper will present the three additional performances of Puccini's Boheme with friend of the show Rachel Willis Sorensen and Jonas Kaufmann. Diana Damrau, and klaus Forian Voigt, klaus Voigt will also present a Strauss concert in November
4: speaking of jonas amazon prime has released a global star in private a kaufmann documentary shot in his home during quarantine the film is an intimate portrait into the personal and professional life of quote the most sought after tenor in the world ein weltstar ganz privat is already available in germany and is set to be distributed soon in other markets on the disabled list l'opéra de droit in
3: Normandy was forced to cancel two live live-stream performances of Wagner's Tannhäuser after a soloist tested positive for COVID-19, instituting a one-week quarantine for the safety of the artists. They hope to be able to continue with their performances on September 30th and October 3rd.
5: And exit stage right, Italian bass Daniele Karnovich has died at age 63. A specialist in Baroque music, Karnovich performed at prestigious early music festivals across Europe and appeared on over 100 recordings on labels such as Decca and Naxos.
2: On this day, September 28th, in 1681, it was the birth of German composer Johann Mattheson in Hamburg. In 1732, the first performance of Pergolesi's comedy The Lovelorn Brother in Naples. In 1863, the premiere of Bizet's The Pearl Fishers in Paris. In 1908, the first performance of Victor Herbert's Little Nemo, an operetta in Philadelphia. In 1903, it was the birth of Hugh Wiley Hitchcock in Detroit. He's a musicologist and editor and co-editor of the New Grove Dictionary of American Music. In 1944, Sir Thomas Allen, the English baritone, was born in See Him. In 1949, it was the birth of German tenor Hans-Peter Blochwitz in Garmisch. In 1956, American composer Laura Kaminsky was born in New York. And in 1976, friend of the show, Huang Ro was born.
1: That is your two-minute drill.
2: one of the greatest hits of Thomas Allen his begging for forgiveness at the end of the marriage of Figaro singing of course the conte dalmaviva and i want to say that uh, at the end of Aaron's interview we heard a little bit of that aria from the prison scene of the stefani opera orlando from the boston early music festival that's what we were talking about earlier in that interview
4: ah uh, yes
1: Time to talk Good just stuff. a little bit more sports before we get into the two-minute drill. The Cubs Ooh. and the Sox are both in the postseason. I mean, this has been a bizarre baseball season to begin with, but uh, there they are. On that note,
4: uh, George, for those of us uh, who might be listening via audio only and cannot see your name on Zoom, would you mind describing it just a little bit for us?
1: White Sox suck, pure and simple. <laughs>
5: Which is enough to cause rage from the other side of the OBS hosting table. I have been professing my love of the Sox and Tim Anderson all season long. I am hoping for a Cubs Sox series because if nothing else, OBS will get real interesting during that period of time.
1: So another quick sports bit before we get into the two-minute drill. Tobias Wright, former co-host of the show, is part of a fantasy football Team with me representing Opera Box Score. We are in a league with company members and singers from Opera Philadelphia. We are not doing well at the moment, <laughs> uh, but it is a privilege to play fantasy football against the likes of general director David Devan, tenor, Ooh. Lawrence Brownlee as well is in the oh. league too. <laughs> Noted
3: Steelers and, fan, Lawrence Brownlee.
1: And really knows oh, the nice yeah. stuff about football. But I just wanted to read the... Uh, review that we got on the nfl.com website after selecting 11th overall opera box score is to projected to finish 12th out of 12 in their league (laughs) while the projections are an ideal the squad is presented with an opportunity to prove them wrong once the games begin they didn't overload at any one position early on instead focusing on balance by drafting a quarterback running back wide receiver and tight end within their first five picks by the time the draft was completed, Opera were ended up with a threesome of running backs with the best opportunity to improve. If I have never heard a better description of the five of us, I don't know <laughs> what it is.
2: That all went over my head, but sure. So
1: <laughs> Things Oliver, were looking grim, Oliver. Oliver Camacho, what is in your head right now for the two-minute drill? Which of these stories is getting your goat up and leading you towards a hot take?
2: <laughs> all right. <laughs> Well, I'm I am embarrassed that last week we did not mention that Yuval Sharon was appointed at Music Op music, Michigan Opera Theater, which is a big get for them. I mean, I don't really know that company that well. I mean, I have I admit that it's not my in my wheelhouse of understanding what their whole brand is and whatnot. But having somebody like that, I'm a MacArthur Genius, be there, uh, definitely makes it much more of an interesting company to me. I want to investigate what's going on. And we'll get to maybe even meet Yval Sharon when he is in Chicago doing the drive-through mm. Go to Damarunk.
1: It's, ah. a, it's a really good hire for Michigan Opera Theater. The, the company is, it's one of the biggies, right? I mean, it's a top-tier company in America run for years by David DeKira who passed away a few years ago. The programming has been... Conservative and traditional with the occasional world premiere, that is definitely not what the Motor City is going to get from Yuval Sharon. That is not probably what the Motor City wants to get in is conservatism, right? Yuval Sharon, the man grew up in Naperville. Then he goes to LA Ah. and he develops the industry, right, where, of course, he uh, premiered uh, Invisible Cities, which was set in the train station, and then Hopscotch, which was performed around the streets of L.A. in a series of cars. Clearly, cars very, very important to Yuval Sharon, growing up in the Burbs and then L.A. <laughs> and now he takes it to Motown, where he's created a version of Goethe Demerang," where you sit in your car, and I think you're driving around a parking lot. I mean,
4: honestly, honestly, all of this, like you know, everyone always make. Uh, I feel like a lot of people tend to make fun of directors who push the envelope and setting opera like in weird places that aren't opera houses. But man, is that coming in clutch with the pandemic, am I yeah, right, exactly. yeah. And also, I am, clutch, I am clutch, clutch, yeah, uh-huh, <laughs> there it is, yeah.
5: Mm. Mm. I,
4: I want to, I, I would, I, I want to. I would pretend that I want that was the pun I wanted to make, but uh, it wasn't uh, the uh, the th- I think it's really, really cool that this uh, that these kinds of experiments have to become the norm because and this is why we do these things. I feel like there's a bit of a and, and you can correct me, George, if I'm wrong, since I'm not as much of a director uh, myself, but I feel like when. Uh, when people see productions um, that are doing something unusual they can often dismiss them as being sort of strange for the sake of being strange but i think uh, i think it's really kind of inspiring to see when uh when something like this become comes to fruition something that is no longer just an experiment but but it, ha- it becomes an integral part of a piece or a performance and i that's as someone who works in theater, that's always something I love to see. Something that is not just, uh, something that is born from experimentation that really says something and resonates and it allows something to be performed that might not have been able to be seen that way otherwise. And I'm really excited by drive Through" Goethe Demerung," guys. <laughs>
2: just as a reminder to audiences who aren't keeping score, uh, the lyric was in the middle of uh, presenting all four Ring cycle operas and then doing the ring, right. it's supposed to be doing the ring this past spring. So now we have three fourths of the David Putney, Poutney ring, and then the fourth installment ostensibly is Yuval Sharon's drive through ring. So it seems
3: like we're going to have to get the other three versions of the drive through ring.
2: I know.
0: Uh, <laughs> Matt
1: Cummings, Matt Cummings, what's on your mind? What is getting you angry and irate about your hot take?
3: So I was, uh, I, I was reading about this—the this story about the the National Trust for Historic Preservation—and watched the whole fifteen minute WQED, uh, the local PBS station here that's, in Pittsburgh. That's a
1: long time for you to spend in one place. <laughs> yeah, I know,
3: but it was—it is fascinating the amount of history that was in this house. It's this gorgeous old Victorian mansion in a historically uh, disadvantaged area of town. I did not know it existed. I grew up here my entire life. Um, I didn't really become an opera fan until I left to go to Chicago, so that was probably part of the reason, but also just that all of this history is around us. The number of people who came through here, like Cap Calloway stayed there when he when he was in town since all the ah. hotels were segregated. Lena Horne stayed there. I'm a Lena Horn stan. I don't know if you know that about me. She's great. Um, <laughs> and it has just absolutely been ravaged by, by time, and it is really the 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 owners of the house sold, like stripped it down and sold it for parts um basically and so in order to restore all this history is really necessary for for us to know that it happened there in the first place like i don't think a i don't think a plaque can can do the same thing as like walking into this house where greatness happened
1: ashley hardgrave when you are Renewing your subscription to Amazon Prime is the first thing that you're gonna switch over to. The uh, Ein Weltstar ganz privat.
5: Uh, nine. Um, (laughs) I'll watch it probably because I assume we'll talk about it again once it's available internationally in two weeks. Um, but it's, I mean, great. I'm glad that. People are creating content in the ways that they can, and the ways that we were asking people to be creative. But the, I mean, he—he's not the subject of a documentary that that I'm super jazzed about. I think he's awesome. I think he's terribly talented. I'll watch it, but I'm not excited about that. What I am excited about are the uh, announcements that are coming out of Covent Garden. Uh, the two—the two solo performances I think are going to be super. Interesting and super creative. Turning, you know, turning Ariadne mm-hmm. into a modern drama is going to be very interesting. Um, I am also, and I know we talked about the lyric already, but I am so jazzed for Factotum. It is going to be bonkers good. It's scratching like two of my itches at the same time. Uh, Barber and incorporating hip hop. I'm terribly excited about it. Have you guys done any, like, have you heard about what they're doing with, with Factotum and this project that Liverman's been working on?
2: I want to get him on the show so we can find out. So I don't know that. But yeah. it sounds like something that George would do with like KF Jock or something like that. Who knows?
4: Stole the idea right from George. I know.
2: Um, I just want to say <laughs> that I'm confused about. I think they're just doing the Ariana Anaxos cantata. They're not doing auf Naxos as a monodrama. No,
3: I think the, they're talking about Phaedra being the monodrama. Okay. The Britain yeah. Phaedra.
2: Okay, cool.
4: I think so.
5: The whole season looks super, I mean, it's it's a pivot for Covent Garden for sure, but the stuff that they have listed, I my eyebrows went up every time I read a new line. And so I was like, oh, well, then I guess, and they'll be available to all of us because they'll be streaming on their website.
2: That sort of brings it full circle and that, like the Lyric Opera, which we know of because we live in Chicago, is a pretty conservative company. And then this announcement, they all seem to be, you know, t- taking the challenge and doing something innovative. And yes, the Met has been doing these, you know, stars and concert things. And I think Joyce DiDonato's, which just right. happened, was the one that maybe had the most theatrical element to it. Yeah. But um, why isn't the Met trying, you know, to do something that only they could do because of their resources and their space for that matter? You know,
4: I, I almost wonder um, the more this pandemic goes on and we see companies like Opera Philadelphia uh, and uh, just really s- step up and and create these strange experimental, um, uh, put on these, these interesting engaging in different ways operas. I almost wonder if sort of the era of met opera hegemony as part as, as far as like the, uh, um, sort of controlling the operatic conversation is kind of at an end at this point. And that, that might be premature to say, and there's still plenty of time for them to turn it around. Um, but, I just every time I see uh, some of these smaller local companies uh, put uh, putting together these exciting programs, I just feel like yeah, I feel like that's the future here. And you know, the Met originally got on the map because it was one of the first to incorporate radio broadcasts in a new medium. Um, but maybe uh, they've kind of lost that edge along the way over the past many decades. <laughs>
5: Here's what I'll say, is that uh, we've given out no less than three pieces of free advice on how the Met can <laughs> really bring things full circle. And since we all know that Peter Gelb is a big fan and a weekly listener to the show, I expect to see these changes implemented <laughs> any day now. Peter, your move.
1: <laughs> Let's wrap this show up. Good
5: call.
0: Bad call. On Opera box Score.
1: Thanks for hanging out with us wherever you are, wherever you're listening. Time for Good Call, Bad Call, the best and the worst of the past week in opera. Oliver Camacho. I have
2: two Good Calls, and one was from last week on Fresh Air, which you can find as a podcast. Uh, Terry Gross interviewed Yannick Nézé-Séguin about his inaugural performance with the Philadelphia Orchestra in 2012 on Verdi's Requiem and they play excerpts from Verdi's Requiem, and they have like a really deep conversation about this piece of music, maybe as deep of a conversation as you'll hear anywhere on any podcast. And for a mainstream platform, I was really impressed. And Yannick Neze says all the right things. That it really makes you want to just, you know, be in the audience for his performance because he's such a smart guy. And also last week, PBS uh, Great Performances uh, aired their second in their se- in this season of Now Hear This with Scott Yu. And this time around, it was all about Schubert. And two friends of the show made it on to Now Hear This, uh, Peter Dugan and his wife, mezzo-soprano Cara Dugan. So yay for friends of the show.
1: Matt Cummings?
2: Uh, Cincinnati, The Cincinnati Symphony
3: posted their season opener online uh, featuring Angel Blue absolutely tearing it up in Knoxville summer of 1915 (laughs) and I highly recommend that you go onto their website and find that stream because it's incredible
1: Weston Williams
4: well we were recording this uh, on September 28th which means in a mere two days it will be Halloween month and you know how ready I am for the spooky season today i parked my car in the middle of a rainstorm and walked through a cemetery i am so excited for halloween everyone
1: Ashley Hardgrave
5: <laughs> My Good Call is actually to Netflix um, so they have come out with a show called Enola Holmes and it's about uh, Sherlock's sister and so they have launched this campaign to talk about all of the overshadowed sisters of famous brothers uh, and so one of the things they did was for Maria Anna Mozart uh, and so next to Wolfgang's statue in Bath they have put up a statue of Maria Mozart who toured alongside her brother right. until her father made her stop touring when it was time to get married. So, yay Netflix for celebrating ladies.
2: General. Oh,
5: General.
1: I got a good call as well. I started off instrumentally as a trumpet player. Just started practicing again when the pandemic started. And today, after years and years of one wanting one, I finally got a flugelhorn. So, uh, I'm so wait, proud of you. Cannot <laughs> wait to start practicing yes. the flugelhorn. <laughs> We have to
5: come up with a jazz name for you, sir.
2: Pandemic project. Maybe you can record our new theme song.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Without any practice whatsoever. Mm. Just go and start blowing.
1: That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk radio show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell at normwaddell.com. dot lcom Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter and Instagram, we're at Opera Box Score. This podcast version of our show is available wherever you get your pods. The views and opinions expressed on Opera Box Score are solely those of the show's creative team. Any rebroadcast, reproduction, or other use of the accounts of this show without the express written consent of Opera Box Score would be totally cool. The creative consultant of Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho, for our guest, Aaron Sheehan, and your co-hosts, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera while you debate. We're back with an all-new show on October 5, plus Oliver's working on an interview with Jene Bridges, and you'll get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more milk and cookies. Join us.